Good evening, everybody. Welcome. I see a few new faces. For those of you who are joining us, it would be a good time for me to just give you a bit of clarifying warning. We are now entering the middle of a series on the book of Job, and we are going through this narrative in order, which means, uh, first of all, just warning to everybody that's been here every night, you still don't really get full answers tonight. (laughs) Yes, I know you were just waiting for that. This, This is the most risky part about doing a series like this through a book that sets it up for the end. It's because I either do just a convincing enough job for you to stick around, but then if I can't deliver at the end, you're mad you wasted your entire week, um, you know, kind of thing or whatnot. But just know that each night is building on the last one. Now, the good news for you, though, is they are recording these, and even better news is I didn't realize this until today, they are putting it on the camp meeting website every night. They actually live update these things every night. Now, it might be 11.30 at night before they get them up, but so the next day, since these don't happen until 7 o'clock, if you're just dying to hear my sweet voice ringing through your earbuds uh, for any particular reason, you can catch the past evening's programs and try and catch up to where we're going. And you might like it because you could put my speed on like three times the speed, and then I would, you know, you know, you get through with me very easy. Uh, But like that. So we're continuing that series. Please hold on for us because the answers are about to come. Tonight is the last preparatory step before the book of Job really begins digging into some firm answers. Uh, But we had to hit rock bottom before we can go up. And if you thought Job was already at rock bottom, cheer up. The church shows up. That's all I'm going to say on that. Um, until we get into the message. But anyway, so uh, we're going to dive into that. We're going to be talking about visions of darkness. Tonight, I think, let me double check from the program, is that what I exactly settled on? Yes, visions of the dark. Okay, said dark, same thing, darkness, dark. Anyway, visions of the dark, that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to be talking about the three friends of Job and what they have to contribute to this story. But before we do that, I'm going to take a moment and just have another word of prayer up here. I want to invite you where you are. If you would just bow your heads individually and you would ask the Lord to speak to your heart, pray for those around you that they would also receive a blessing. And while you're at it, ask that I would be hidden behind the text that we would just clearly see what the scriptures have for us tonight. And as you are uh, wrapping that up, after we have a few moments of silence, I'll bring us together out loud in a close of that prayer. And we'll get started with our message, Visions of the Dark. So let's just take a moment in prayer. Father, there is a lot of darkness in this world. And we're not just talking about the absence of the light of the sun or a light bulb. There is a lot of darkness about who you are or who we are, and it causes a lot of pain and damage. We're asking tonight as we wade into a whole bunch of darkness that you would give us wisdom to make sense of it and to come out into the light on the other side. May we see Jesus clearly. And may the same spirit that inspired these words now instruct us to their meaning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The three friends, the church elders, the church folk, they are here. Turn with me in the book of Job, either via your PowerPoint or physical copy, to chapter 4. And some of you are going to be like, wow, we're this many nights in and you're only at chapter 4 out of 42. Don't worry. It's going to really go fast now. 
because just like last time, I'm trying to put all the narrative of each one of these people that are speaking all at once. So even though it's all split up, as I said, all these conversations are one-sided conversations where they've all determined what they're going to say, what they believe, and all it is is back and forth, back and forth, of them just waiting for the other one to finish making their point so they can go back and make their same point again. So I'm just cramming all of the exact same point together, and we'll just get it done one at a time. So we get to start. <laughs> the three friends, we do, by the way, remember in chapter 2, they start off well because it says they came to sympathize and comfort him. Right? And we did say they did start off well. They spent seven days just sitting with him in his grief and in his pain. They, they started off well. Right? So I do want to give them credit. And then the story is going to switch to Eliphaz. What a great name. Eliphaz, who's really the ringleader of these three. And the way we know he's the ringleader is, first of all, he's the first to speak. And second of all, he says the most of any of the three friends. And hopefully by the night you will see he's actually the one that sets the stage for what the other two parrot. The other two basically take points Eliphaz makes and just kind of do their own spin on it, but are saying the same thing. They're kind of all in league with this. And all three of them are talking. So are you in chapter four? Here we go. All right, Eliphaz, bring it. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you have strengthened feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? Basically, this is a really fancy way of starting his conversation by going, I thought you believed in God, and therefore know this truth of God. Oh, that's a great start. Right? He's basically like, here you go. All right, Eliphaz, what's the truth you think Job should know? Verse 7. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity are those who sow trouble to harvest it. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Again, this poetic imagery. But this is basically what he's saying. Bad only comes in response to bad. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Bad happens because of bad. No matter if you're as mighty as the lion or as little as the little lion cub, God's going to correct the people who are bad. That's the gist of his message. You see it? (laughs) Yeah, what a friend. (laughs) Right? Yeah, and by the way, though, before we pick on Eliphaz, what's very interesting about this is this already tends to be one of the primary arguments we hear in this world about suffering, isn't it? Right? If bad things are happening to you, you must have done something to cause it or to deserve it, etc. True? You don't have to be religious to believe that, right? If you were good or if God was pleased with you, nothing bad would happen. These are the kinds of arguments that lead, by the way, to the next seemingly logical point Eliphaz is going to make. Jump ahead to chapter 5, verse 8, because all of this is him just continuing to go on and on and on and on and on about this. Look at what he says now, verse 8 but of chapter 5. But as for me, after he's told him this, I would seek God. And I would place my cause before God. 
who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Ah, now he's preaching. Here we go. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields so that he sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Doesn't this sound so lovely now? Right? I mean, this just sounds so beautiful. I mean, basically what he's saying is this. This probably is not new to any of you either. The same God who punishes, ah, he shows mercy. Isn't that what he's doing? He's like, oh, man, he's beating the snot out of you. But, ah, if you would just but seek God and ask forgiveness, things would be better. That's what he's saying. Which, by the way, isn't that the very first response the church normally gives you? Let's just be real. This is real talk in here. And I'm saying that as a member of the church. I'm not leaving. I'm not trying to say you should leave. I'm just making the point. Isn't that the first go-to we go to? Something's wrong. Hey, hey have, you, have you confessed to Jesus about it? If you would just go to God, things would get better, right? And sometimes you're like, I have been going to God, right? And you think that, but that's our first response. Go to God. He'd show mercy. Things would be better. God will stop the torture if you would just repent and believe. Or even worse, because let's be honest, I have heard this in church as well. You know, God's only doing this to save you. You heard that before? Right? Right? I mean... You'll be thankful for it later. All the pain will have been worth it if you would just believe and repent and receive salvation. And some variation of this, that evil is happening because you are evil, or bad is happening because you deserve it, and if you would just turn to God, the same God that is punishing you is doing this to save you. If you would just turn to him, all would be well. That's really the main thrust of everything Eliphaz says here, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 15, and chapter 22. That's really the thrust of his argument. But don't worry, cheer up, Bildad picks up right where Eliphaz left off. And even though he actually says very little lengthwise compared to Eliphaz throughout the narrative, what he does add is another sadly familiar and really demonic twist. Go to chapter 8. Bildad always sounds like a hobbit to me, but anyway... (laughs) Just as a side note, Bildad the, the Job Hobbit. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> you don't have to be in my head when I read the Bible. All right, chapter 8, verse 4. Here we go to Bildad. Oh, man, he, oh, man. It's lucky I wasn't Job. I would have taken a swing at Bildad for this, but here we go. If your sons sinned against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Pause. What he's basically saying is, your children must have done something bad to die. Because remember, his kids all died at the beginning of the narrative. The house collapsed on them and took them all out. Oh, how comforting. Bildad's like, ha, your kids deserved it. They did something bad, and so God went, pancake. That's what he's saying. Well, man, you're a great comforter, right? But then he picks up where Eliphaz was, verse 5. If you would seek God and implore the compassion of the Almighty. If you are pure and upright, surely now he would rouse himself for you and restore your righteous estate. Though your beginning was insignificant, yet your end will increase greatly. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we are only of yesterday and know nothing because our days on earth are like a shadow. But will they not teach you and tell you and bring forth words from their minds? Basically, he's saying this. You don't, your kids did something bad, so God killed them. Uh, but you don't have to end up like them if you would confess to God. 
Everyone in time past has learned from things like this, and you should learn from their example. Turn from God and you suffer. This isn't a new argument either. If you turn from God, you suffer. Sounds right, doesn't it? Kind of makes sense. And by the way, we hear this all the time in our world today too. People get what's coming to them, right? A hurricane comes. I can remember when I was in college at Columbia Union College. It's now Wau. Went from Cuck to Wau, but whatever. Anyway, um, you know, right? They did that. And remember, there was this thing called Hurricane Katrina that came into New Orleans. Anyone old enough or at least know of that, right? And drowned the whole thing in one big fishbowl of water because they had a lake on one side and the ocean on the other and a river on the other. Right, you know, this kind of thing. Here's the thing. And that happens, and church people are like, well, that was a wicked city, you know, because of everything that happens with Mardi Gras and all that, and they had what was coming to them. You heard that before? That kind of thing. Ah, that city deserved it. They turned from God, and they got what was coming. You turn from God, and you suffer. Big-name preachers, even, I dare say, in Adventism, Things will happen. A big earthquake in Indonesia and wipe out tons of people. And, and he will remain nameless because I want to encourage you to read his stuff. But there was a big-name guy, preacher in the South, that a lot of people know that when the earthquake and tsunami happened in Asia, was like, don't let church people say the devil did that. God did it to punish those people. Because it's a Muslim country anyway. Right? They deserved that. Right? An earthquake happens in Los Angeles. Ah, the city of fallen angels. They had what was coming to them. If we're not careful, isn't that what we do? And sometimes, let's just be fair, some in-house talk. For those of you who are not Seventh-day Adventists, I apologize. We're about to air a little bit of our dirty laundry here. Uh, Pray for us like we, you know, pray for you hopefully as one big family. Here's the thing. Bad things will happen in other churches or other denominations. And our response will be, well, if they had only known the truth, this could have been prevented. If only they weren't one of them Sunday keepers. If only they wouldn't eat Porky Pig. Then, uh, if only they didn't worship the Pope. In whatever argument you want to make, this trouble would not have fallen on them. We do that, don't we? You can't pick on Bildad because we've done the same thing. Or even more demonic, well, your parent, child, friend, or whatever did this, so God is punishing you because you didn't stop it. Or you didn't step in to relinquish the blood on your hands. And by the way, this isn't new. I'm not trying to pick on the modern church as much as even the church in Jesus' day did that. Two stories that come right off the top of my mind. You might remember in John 9, there was this man that was blind from birth. And as they're walking by, the disciples, you know, the knuckleheads that have been with God himself for a while, they're like, hey, Jesus, they think this is a perfectly logical question to ask Jesus. You know, the one that by the time he's done walking through a city, no one's dead, dying, sick anything right you know and they're like hey jesus who sinned him or his parents that he was born blind what he was born blind right don't worry they'd come up with a theology for that jews actually in the first century they did believe because of the story and they actually had a bible text they tried to use to prove this they took this story from genesis Okay, where you might forget this because they weren't main characters, where there was twins that were wrestling in the womb, and as one was coming out, right, they put, they put a ribbon on the arm as it was coming out of the foot, and he kind of got pulled back in, and the other one got born first, and they said that they had been wrestling in the womb, and the other one came out, but the one that had the ribbon was supposed to be the firstborn. Does anyone remember this? I don't remember their names off the top of my head, so I don't want to like, oh, the preacher said the wrong name in the story. 
Um, but here's the thing. And they said that the two babies, the children, because the other one fought to come out first, he had sinned in the womb. That's actually what they taught, that he had sinned in the womb. So it was possible to sin before you were born. Right? One other story you might remember in Luke 13, right? Jesus was approached by the church people, the holy people, who asked him two stories about suffering. They said, hey, Herod killed all these people and mixed their blood into his festival, so they must have been horrible sinners for him to kill them. And then they brought up another story that had just happened. They said, hey, remember that tower that fell and killed 13 people, the Tower of Siloam, and fell on them and crushed them, right? What evil people those were. And Jesus is kind of like, what? He's like, do you think they were any worse sinners than you? Right? I mean, I'm so glad God is patient with us, right? But, I mean, I'm just trying to say this is nothing new in history. We've often thought like Bildad, like the disciples, like the church people, or even worse, one last point, how many times do we hear this among all faiths? You know, things in America are getting worse, and it's all because we've allowed abortion, gay marriage, this war, that policy, pushed the Ten Commandments out of the public square, taken prayer out of school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's Bildad in a nutshell. Isn't it? Turn from God, you get what's coming to you. And I'm not saying I support any of those things, but I'm just saying that's the underlying theme. It's coming to them because they deserve it, because they've turned. But cheer up, not to be outdone, Zophar chimes in. Turn to chapter 11. What a great name, Zophar. Verse 1, chapter 11. Then Zophar, the Namathite, answered... Shall a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? Basically saying you're talking too much. So you're bo- <laughs> you almost want to say the same thing about Zophar. Shall your boast silence men and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you have said my teaching is pure and I am innocent in your eyes. But would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom for sound wisdom has two sides. Know that God forgets a part of your iniquity. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> okay going to keep going on that theme verse 7 can you discover the depths of god can you discover the limits of the almighty they are as high as the heavens what can you do deeper than sheol what can you know its measure is longer than the earth broader than the sea if he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly who can restrain him for he knows false men and he sees iniquity without investigating an idiot will become intelligent when the fall of a donkey is born a man wow he's basically calling him a you know what a donkey (laughs) <laughs> mm, I won't say that word anyway. If, and now here goes verse 13, his main point. If you would direct your heart right and spread your hand to him, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and do not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then indeed you would lift up your face without moral defect and you would be steadfast and not fear. Basically, he says, oh, you think your complaints and mocking are solving anything? You're fortunate God already overlooks some of your iniquity. You'll never be able to understand what God thinks or why he does what he does. You should better spend your time putting your heart right and putting away your iniquity. Seek forgiveness with God and everything would be better. That's nothing new either. We say this too, right? Yeah, I know it's bad, but it could be far worse. Good thing you're lucky God doesn't always hit you with stuff all the time. You're fortunate God's only hitting you a little bit because he's covered you with grace, so you're only getting hit a teeny bit. Isn't that usually what we say? This is new too. 
right? Oh, work at putting your life together so things could get better, right? And just praise Jesus that you only got hit with half of it. So here's the wisdom of the three friends in a nutshell. If you missed it. Eliphaz, this is his main point. Evil and suffering are from God as repayment for the same. Bildad, he says this. People get what's coming to them, and God punishes us for allowing them to do what they do. And then Zophar, God's mercy is that you don't have it even worse. Stop wasting time trying to find answers and repent already. That's the three friends in a nutshell. So is what they're saying true? Is what they're saying true? Are those things that we still hear to this day, there must be a reason we still hear it to this day, are they true? Well, this might come as a shock to you, maybe not. As with all believable untruths, there is some truth mixed in with a whole lot of error. And if we're honest with ourselves, most people know that we are often the cause of suffering to ourselves and others. Right? I mean, it, you know, you don't have to admit it tonight, but we, can, we all know if we stick our hand in the fire and it's on fire, that was my doing. Right? You know, if I say something nasty to you, that was on me. Right? I mean, most of us kind of understand that concept that, you know, causation. Okay? We, we, we get that we suffer things that we did. Okay? But we also, though, suffer a lot of things that we did not cause. Right? What about the drunk driver hitting you? Right? What if you were born with some sort of genetic disorder? Right? What if you were cheated on? What if you were lied to? What if you were pushed into the fire? Right? I mean, and we wrestle with that because we know there's other things that we did nothing to do with. But we also look back on our lives, and if we're Christian folk, we try and hold on to the evidences we see where we think God kind of really kept it from being worse than it could have been. And so we hold on to, well, at least God didn't let me take the whole thing, right? And the book of Job is going to address those nuances starting tomorrow because there's another character that's going to show up. and he's going to, it, There is going to be more talk on that. But once again, there is a glaring accusation among all three of these beliefs. The first is they're defaming Job as wicked and evil, even though the book started by saying he was righteous and good. And they're accusing God of being evil. For he is doing this, and he is causing this, and he won't stop until you go to him. Which is kind of interesting, because isn't that the very two people that were defamed at the very beginning of the book? Have you noticed that nothing's changed? Job's bad, God's bad. Job's bad, God's bad. It's continued, and here's the thing. If you've read the narrative up to this point, that's what the author wants you to notice. These aren't new arguments. In fact, it should give us pause to ask, where have we heard these arguments before? And now, you've been primed. I want to go back to the beginning where we just started with the three friends because I intentionally skipped a part of Eliphaz's speech so that I could drop this bombshell that will hopefully change the way you see a big chunk of this narrative. Go back to chapter 4. Oh, I've been excited about this all week to show you this. If you've held on this long, you're about to be richly rewarded. <laughs> At least I hope so. I'm going to enjoy it. Sorry if you don't, but, you know, anyway. Sorry. All right, chapter four. We're back to Eliphaz, and here's a part that we often miss, because, again, it's in, po- it's in poetic form, and you kind of get lost in everything you saying about lions and cubs and whatever. You know, it's like Simba. I mean, you know, you're just like, okay, Lion King, you move on. Right? You know, Hakuna Matata. 
But look back at this, verse 12, chapter 4. Eliphaz, the main ringleader, he's the one the other two bailed off of. He's the one that does the most talking. Right at the beginning of his speech, he's going to inform us about where he's come up with this idea. Where the friends have gotten their good theology to share with Mr. Job. Here he goes, verse 12. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, and made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Pause right here. We often miss this. I'd miss this many times reading through Job. Right at the beginning, the foundation of all the three friends will say they claim to be sharing what they do because they think it has come directly from God. That's what he's saying. I was in the middle of the night. The spirit has arrived and it startled me, and then it begins to speak. You see what he's claiming? God, like deity showed up and has told us what God's doing and how he's working in the world. Basically, the stuff they learned in church and life as people of faith. Right here, Eliphaz predicates his entire argument on receiving a vision of God in the night, specifically from a spirit. And the Hebrew word here, spirit, is literally breath, which is the same word you see in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says all scripture is given of inspiration of God, and it's profitable, right? That inspiration, and all, all of it in the Greek, it says, is God breathed, therapnutos. The idea of breath, that God speaks truth. That he does. So he's claiming, hey, guess what? The Spirit has come and given us this info. And by the way, how can you argue with someone who says they got it straight from God? Right? And if it comes from God, you want to cheer them on, right? Like, yeah, yeah, give us the truth. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, how many people, including church people, how many times do we as people of faith often say hurtful, cruel, and terrible things in the name of helping someone out because we know we got it from God? It's the truth. Do we do that? But wait, uh, some of you are already figuring it out because you're still going. I can hear it. It makes you almost want to cheer him on until you read what the Spirit tells him. This is the bombshell. Don't miss it. Verse 17. Here's the voice that spoke to him in the night. Verse 17. Can man be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? In modern language, will God ever treat man fairly? Has not God orchestrated a system rigged against you? Keep that in your mind. Verse 18. He puts no trust even in his servants. And don't miss this next line. And against his angels, he charges error. What he's basically saying is he doesn't trust his own followers. In fact, he even blames his angels for being wrong. Look at verse 19. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before the moth. What he's basically saying is, Even angels, God is crushing underneath his heel. He's going to do the same to humanity as if we were all moths. Now, here's the thing. I don't know about you, but when I read that, you have to beg, what do angels have to do with anything? You ever thought about that? I mean, what do angels have to do with what Job was asking? Job was asking about suffering, not the merits of the universal system of governance. Job was asking about suffering. And now this thing's talking about angels. And that God's crushing angels under their feet. 
like they were moths. That God's system is rigged. Somebody just got it. This isn't the Holy Spirit talking to Eliphaz. This is Satan. See, we thought he checked out at chapter 2. But Satan actually shows up in the church folk and talks till chapter 32. Because the Bible warned us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. He will speak. They think God has given them a vision of the truth and it is a demon working power giving them the great controversy in a nutshell. God doesn't even trust angels. He's rigged the system. He's crushing us. He'll do the same thing to you. Who believed any of that? Who have we already seen in the narrative who thinks that way? Maybe the guy that showed up twice to a heavenly council meeting saying the same thing to God. He's been speaking 30 chapters more. And we didn't even see it. At least I didn't. And now you see the true heart, by the way, of Satan's argument and the great controversy. It's becoming visible in Job's friends. This isn't about Job. This isn't about council meetings. This isn't even about suffering. This is about raw power. This is about getting even. The devil believes God's system of government is rigged. God's only looking out for himself. And he's going to punish and destroy anything and everything he can to make sure everyone knows that God sucks because even the fallen angels have been pushed out of this system. Even the angels are being crushed. And I'm going to prove how bad he is and I'm going to destroy Job to prove it. This has nothing to do with Job. Job is now caught in the middle. Now we see glimpses through the friends of the thing that God knew at the beginning when we saw last night and the night before, right? Where he had said, you tried to incite me to evil against Job for no cause. He was trying to let the heavenly council know, I didn't do these things to Job. That's what he's done. That's what this accuser has done. The truth of who Satan is and his system is becoming apparent to everyone. This was, not just, this was not him looking out for Job. This was not him looking out for the heavenly council. This is not him trying to prove a point about God. This is Satan being just demon. This is him just destroying someone's life for no better reason than to prove a point he's been trying to make from the beginning. This system is rigged. You are a liar. You are evil. And here's the proof. And he's so driven by this that he would destroy anything and everything he can touch on the earth. He claims to rule just to prove the point. And what's more scary to me is there are a lot of people, even a lot of religious people, that believe the same. Unfortunately, the church... Sometimes as people that claim to speak for God, we often speak for Satan. We speak for power rather than for love. And I don't doubt that we probably believe these things, and I won't pretend that I can totally undo in one week the totality of your life's learning or whatever visions the darkness has brought you, the darkness of your suffering, your experiences, maybe even one night of bad theology or a bad church experience. But I want you to know there is a spirit out there that deals even with well-meaning people that is spreading lies. That the system is rigged, that God has done this to you, and that you get what you get. But friends, the Bible wants to pull the curtain off of that and let you know that's not God speaking. 
That's not the system of the universe. That's the system of one that doesn't give one rat's rear about you. That's someone who is so bitter and angry and ticked off at God for reasons that thankfully Job will get into starting tomorrow. It's not even about you anymore. Like this, it's actually, this power doesn't even really see you. You're just a means to an end to prove a point. That the system is rigged and that God is evil and they're going to prove it any way they can. And I have to ask the question, if even there's a glimmer of that in your mind where that sounds true to you, maybe that that fits what you've been taught, what you've experienced, I have to ask, are you willing to set aside what has been taught you perhaps by the spirits in your life? And are you willing to set it aside and say, you know what, maybe my vision has not been very clear to this point. Maybe the vision I thought I had of light is actually of the dark. Are you willing to set it aside and not just trust the breath that meets you in the night? And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, it scared Eliphaz to death. Hair was standing up on the back of his neck. Are you willing to set aside what that breath says? Are you willing to hear what a different breath, the breath of the Spirit of God says? Because he's got a totally different message. And he's got a totally different bit of evidence. He's got a totally different direction he wants to go with this. And that's what Job is about to hear. And that's hopefully what we are about to hear. But I have to ask you in this moment, if any of you have visions of the darkness in your mind, are you willing to lay them aside and say, I need a different spirit to speak to me. I need to know something true in the midst of the visions of my life. Is anyone willing to say, my vision is not clear and I need something new to see? Anyone willing to say that? Praise God. Father, first of all, forgive us as a church when we've often, we, we've meant well. I don't want to judge anyone's intent. I don't, I don't think anyone shares what they do just because they hate people. I would hope not. The friends really want to help Job. They think they're doing God's will. I don't want to deny that. But unfortunately, they've been duped. They bought a lie. A different spirit talked to them. And it wasn't you. And Father, oftentimes, even in my own life, I know I've said things and done things and believed things that in hindsight I realized they weren't from you. Maybe I got it in the night, but instead of a vision of hope, it was a nightmare. Instead of a vision of peace, it was a vision of despair. And Father, I don't know what my brothers and sisters here tonight are going through specifically in their event, but I know that since we're human and we're all on this dirt ball together, we have all had dark visions in our life. We have all not seen you clearly. We have all not seen people around us clearly. We've not seen the reality of this universe clearly. And we're asking tonight that you would please, please give us the strength to set those aside and please Speak to us a different vision. Please, through the power of your word, spirit, show us the truth. What's going on? If it is not you, then who is it? If you don't cause it, then why and how will it end? Keep us until we see those answers in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name.